Lots of them. That's good. Hey, if it's your first Sunday here, you picked a good week to come because we have a special edition end of VBS potluck afterwards. So normally we have a, a meal the first Sunday of every month. It's not the first Sunday of any month, uh, but there's still lunch for you afterwards um, to, to celebrate the end of our VBS and uh, to welcome anyone that likes lunch to church. Um, I, 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 love seeing, I love seeing our church come together and function so well during VBS to make all of that happen so well uh, every single day and then still come to church on Sunday when I know you guys could be catching up on sleep for sure. I have not recovered. Um, we, are, we are thankful that, uh, that this is a church full of people wanting to reach the kids in our community. Amen. Yeah, we're grateful for that. Uh, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, we come to a, uh, maybe a well-known passage. I, I hope this is a, a passage that's familiar to you, and I want it to become beautiful to you. I want it to be more than familiar. I want this to be a passage that we we come to a more further understanding of, of course, and we, we come to, to see it for all it is, but, but um, I want this passage to lead us to rejoice in the faithfulness of God. Because uh, you'll see in the middle of these verses, we're going to read from 12 to 14 here, uh, there's this statement, God is faithful, and I don't think we could overdo any sermon on that theme. So I'll, I'll go from verse 12, I'll read through verse 14, and then we'll get a feel for the context, and I'll remind you of stuff that we talked about last week, and then we'll walk through these verses one piece at a time. Verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Jesus, we ask for uh, divine understanding of these things, spiritual understanding of, of words we believe to be spiritual. We pray that the truths of these, uh, these verses would settle into our hearts, that the seed of your word would find fertile soil in each one here and bear much fruit. We want to run to you, Jesus, our escape, our rescue, our door that we run through. Be with us now, inviting us to yourself in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's get a feel for the context here and where we are in the chapter. Paul, who wrote this book, just got done listing several instances of Israel's monumental failures uh, it's not a flattering 12 or 11 verses that we just, just read. They were worshiping idols. They were sexually promiscuous. They whined a lot. And, and it says even though they had, uh, they had come through some very important uh, spiritual experiences that really and truly did change them and give them their true identity, they went through the Red Sea, which Paul says was a type of baptism. They ate spiritual food and drank spiritual drink. And Having all of that and having a great leader like Moses, they still managed to succumb to temptations like Moses. And this ultimately resulted in their inability to receive the promises of God. That first generation that came out of Egypt died in the wilderness, except for a couple guys. Okay, 
those who sinned in the wilderness and the occasions that Paul mentioned did not enter the promised land with Joshua. And twice in the first uh, 10, 11 verses, Paul says that all of these Bible stories are for us to learn from. In verse 6, he wrote, Now these things became our example to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Okay, you've got a great little story with a moral at the end, super easy to understand. Don't be like those guys because that was a bad decision. Be like good guys who make better decisions. Okay, uh, verse 11, he repeats himself. He says, Now all of these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And and there were two phrases last week that we pulled out of these passages, uh, and two phrases that I, I repeated as a way of remembering what Paul's main points in all of this were, watch yourself and watch your Savior. Uh, in verses 12 through 14, this uh, section we come to today, we get those points again. We see the great need we have of walking circumspectly, to use a Bible phrase, to live with our eyes open to the temptations that abound, of realizing that there's really nothing new under the sun, as Ecclesiastes says. There's, there was temptations then, there's temptations now, there was failures then, there's failures now. So we walk with our eyes open to the temptations that abound, and we also see the goodness and the glory of our God who cares for the tempted and for the suffering. And we need to see and rejoice in this fact that he is more than capable of caring for us. In verse 12, Paul says, take heed. Fancy way of saying, pay attention. He says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. This is the command. Watch yourself. Watch where you're going. Have your eyes open. Pay attention. And verse 13 is all about temptation and how temptation works. And there's this really big, beautiful theological truth right in the middle of all of this that is the heartbeat of our passage. It's God is faithful. And then just like there was an application of the truths, the first 11 verses, there in verse uh, 12, there's an application of verse 13 in the following verse. So the first 11 verses are all these failures. It warms up. What's the application? Well, take heed. Those of you who stand, take heed lest you fall. Um, in verse 11, it said these were examples for us, written for our admonition. So pay attention to the examples. Verse 13 is going to tell us all about temptation and and how it's common and everyone gets it. Uh, and then in verse 14, there's the application. Well, what do I do about it? What do I do about it? Knowing that I'm tempted and God is faithful. Flee from idolatry. That's verse 14. As an idol is anything that is a false god. Anything that you could worship above God. Anything that you could place uh, above in priority more as, and assume that it's more important than Jesus Christ. That's an idol. He says, flee from that. Flee from idolatry. Now, it is impossible to flee from all sin without running towards its opposite. To run from idolatry is to run to the true and living God. It's to run to Jesus. So verse 12 says, take heed, that's watch yourself. And then verse 14 and following, which we'll get into next week, that's foreshadowing, come back for more. So watch your Savior. Run from sin, run to Jesus. Let's go back and walk through each verse one at a time. So verse 12, you'll see in it begins with the words, therefore. So we know we're in a transition from one section to another. Specifically, we're transitioning from a section of Scripture containing information uh, into a text that's containing the application of that information. Okay, because of this, all this stuff in verses 1 through 11, therefore, 
we need to believe and act like this, all the stuff over here. And again, for the first 11 verses, pretty much about mistakes. It's about failures. That was pretty much the main point. So because of our newfound awareness of human frailty and our own ability to mess things up in a real way, because of that, because of that information given to us in those first 11 verses, because of our association on a spiritual level with these failures, we know ourselves, we are but dust. Because of these truths, therefore, take heed, watch yourself, pay attention. Now, he specifically says this to those who think they stand. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. He's talking to those people who say, yeah, I'm good. I'm fine. Really, I'm fine. Like, I love that you're preaching a sermon right now, but I'm fine. And this letter is lovely that Paul wrote to us, the Corinthians. That's, that's great, but, but I'm good. And he's like, okay, you, you think you're standing? Okay, you can fall. You know that, right? Those of you who think you stand, take heed lest you fall. This is not the same thing as having confidence in your salvation, which is a good thing. It's not the same thing as having confidence in Jesus' saving power, which is a good thing. We read elsewhere in the New Testament, these things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. So knowing that you have eternal life, hey, that's a good thing. It's okay to proclaim with all the confidence in the world, I am saved, or to sing on Christ the solid rock, I stand. Paul's message here in, in Corinthians is not to make every person doubt their salvation, but it is, he is talking to those whose confidence has now morphed into arrogance, and this places them in the same danger as the Israelites. In this case, those who think they stand are those whose confidence is in their own perceived inability to fail, rather than in the faithfulness and sovereignty of God. Saying I can't fail and God won't fail me, those are two very different things. I hope you can see that, right? Those are very different things. The need for the admonitions, warnings, examples that Paul shared was to say, don't be like these people. They could fail and they thought they were beyond all that. Verse 13 is going to say that the temptation, it's not above you. It's not beyond you. You can fail too. You can mess up. Don't judge those people that are failing differently than you. There before the grace of God, you know the phrase, go I. Verse 13 is going to say that temptation is not above you, but there is a way of escape. You don't have to sin in these same ways that you're tempted to. But the first 12 verses show that you're not above being tempted. So watch yourself. Take heed. Those of you who think you stand, what are you standing on? Well, I have very good habits. Oh, big deal. <laughs> right? Like, that's not... Paul's examples of Israel were baptism and spiritual food, showing the importance that the early church put on sacraments, by the way, and stuff we'll start talking about next week. But what, what do you place your confidence in? It must be Christ and Christ alone. And in, in the place that 1 Corinthians has been taking us is this place where we are sure to... Uh, esteem love as the supreme virtue. Um, we're, we're following this argument, um, and really we're following Christ and his order to love one another, the supremacy of love. We're getting to chapter 13. You know it, you hear it at weddings all the time. That's where we're headed. So those who think they stand on their own good sense take heed because all other ground other than Christ, it's sinking sand. Those who stand on their own understanding take heed and lean not on your own understanding, right? Proverbs 3, 5. 
Those of you who think you stand on your correct doctrine, but don't have the good behavior to match, take heed. You watch yourself. You can fall. Those of you who stand on your own spiritual experiences, which was kind of his example with the Red Sea crossing and everything. Okay, so you, st- you stand on your, your testimony, your conversion experience, this thing that happened to you a long time ago, but you are not growing in love and walking in obedience. Take heed lest you fall. Falling is an option. Now, I, I think, I, I know that Paul knows that he is writing some sobering stuff. This is, this, uh, this is a scathing rebuke to some of the Corinthians that fortunately we don't know. We don't know their deal. Their name isn't included, so we can't, you know, give them a hard time. But there are some people in the Corinthian church that needed to hear this, and this hurt to hear. And I think Paul knows that this kind of passage can often land on the wrong place. You know, intended for the spiritually arrogant to say, hey, watch yourself. You know, you need to take a look at your own hubris, but instead the humble are more likely to take this to heart. And they would be reading this and, and they would take it kind of hard and say, well, then I might, I mean, if they fail, do I even have a chance? You know, am I even saved? I mean, if, if you only look at yourself without looking at your savior, this is exactly where you will end up. You'll have no reason to expect that you are in good condition if the only thing you have is a mirror. But it's not Paul's intent to create a whole church full of people who are doubting their salvation. He doesn't want people to read his letter and be left in hopelessness thinking, well, if Israel failed, how could I possibly hope to do any better? And I think it's in answer of these anticipated questions that Paul writes verse 13. The first 12 verses, he's essentially said, watch out, guys, be humble. You, you can fail. Those of you who think you stand, take heed lest you fall. The promised land is there, but people die on this side of the Jordan. You're in a race, but, chapter 9, into this way, right? Not everyone wins the race. Not everyone even finishes the race. But that's not the only thing he has to say. He says, after he says you can fail, now he says you don't have to. <laughs> and better, better than that, he says, yes, you, you, you're a bunch of failures. God's people, it's a history of failures. But God is faithful. That's the point. This is a beautiful passage. Verse 13 begins, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. The word temptation there, it's sometimes translated as test. And in English, those words do not mean the same thing, the way we use it in our, in just our natural conversation. But in Greek, the word is broad enough to include both. Temptation to sin and a testing that, that may, not, may not be sinful in its own nature. Now, when you think of tempting, you think of sins, rightly so, okay? It's the cookie in the jar that you're not supposed to have and you're tempted to go take it out and then lie about it, okay? And, and the, that, the context, verse 1 through 11, it, it, it includes that idea that talks about idolatry, sexual immorality. These are temptations. But the word which includes those kinds of temptation also includes testing, which includes a different experience. It describes a different experience. When you think of temptation, you think of like sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? But you don't think about cancer, well, it's no sin to have cancer. No, but that is a test. And you are tempted in it to a completely different variety of, of sins. Loss of job, loss of loved ones, financial struggles, grief. Those aren't temptations in the same way as our narrow category of temptations. But they are tests. And this word for temptation is broad enough to include both, both experiences. It's not just the cheese in the mouse trap. 
You know, the word here is broad enough to include trials and temptations. And the context allows for this in the first part of chapter 10 as well. The Israelites were tempted by idols, which would usually be like, you know, false promises of wealth and happiness and things like that. Uh, illicit sex, verse 8, and by, by false promises of false gods. But they are also tested by lack of provision. They were in the wilderness and they were hungry and thirsty. Is it a sin to be thirsty? No. Was it a test? Yes. Were they tempted by that test to question the goodness of God? Yes. Times were hard. They wanted to go back to Egypt. Verse 10 says they grumbled and they were destroyed. And this became a kind of temptation in its own way. All this to say your temptation might not be a temptation to some sin that you that so easily ensnares you or some perverse behavior of your past, though our enemy will try for those footholds if they are available to him. But the temptations that are presented, that you are presented with, may be better described in English as testing, and it could be nothing more than finding yourself in a situation where you are tempted to complain or doubt. So we need this broad definition. We need this broad definition of temptation in this passage because we need to see it as we see it as, as anything that will pull you away from God, whether it's something pleasurable or something painful, you need to see this broad definition of temptation so that you can see the depth of the faithfulness of God. That his faithfulness to you is not just when you want to take something you shouldn't, see something you shouldn't, say something you shouldn't. His, his way of escape, his ability to give you the power to endure is through every temptation and test. Temptations include the draw towards things you think of that you think are more satisfying than Christ and temptations that draw you towards an unholy dissatisfaction with the place where Christ has called you. His grace is enough for all of these scenarios. These are tests and temptations, and we can see that in a way all temptations are tests of faith, of course. All tests are temptations to stop trusting, in a way. A temptation to sin, to take a thing you know you shouldn't have, for example, is a test of faith. Do you believe that Christ satisfies? Do you believe that there is joy in obedience? Do you believe that he can take care of you? And every test is a temptation, being sick, being in trouble, being afraid. These aren't the same kind of temptation, right? They're not a temptation to things. And it's obviously no sin to be in those situations, but times of testing are also times when we are tempted to despair. To look for our ultimate hope somewhere other than the God who satisfies even unto death. To complain. To doubt the goodness of God. We are tempted towards these things in every season of trial. So the definition is, is broad. And I want you to have this broad definition of the word temptation because I want you to have a deep gratitude and a deep understanding of God's faithfulness. He is faithful and good in every trial and temptation. It says, no temptation has overtaken you. Overtaken, uh, literally the word is just taken. Um, the temptation has come to take possession of you. This is why you need an escape, because you are captive to the temptation. Anyone who has found themselves in the clutches of a strong temptation knows exactly why this kind of language makes so much sense here. It feels like it has you and you can't get away. Paul says you can, but we're getting ahead of ourselves there. Translating it as overtaken continues the race metaphor that Paul began in chapter 9. 
It adds a real sense of urgency to this race that we are told to run. If you slow down, people catch up to you. Temptations will catch up to you. They won't pass you. Temptations aren't headed to the finish line of ultimate satisfaction in Christ. No, they're chasing you. The temptations that overtake you in this race want to catch. They don't want to catch up with you. They want to catch you. And these temptations that have caught you or caught up to you or overtaken you, this you may feel like you're the only one who has to deal with this stuff. And you think, what, what am I doing? No one understands, and that is a lie. Let me say this with the compassion of a pastor's heart. You're not special. <laughs> or or maybe, maybe not in this way, at least. Or maybe I should say it this way. Your temptations aren't special. Your temptations aren't special. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. You cannot point to a time when you were tempted to sin or despair or doubt and say, I'm the only person that experienced that one. You can't do it. Now, our tendency, whether we admit it out loud to ourselves or not, you know, our tendency is to believe that our struggles are unique and special and no one understands us. And we learn... Uh, we learn to isolate ourselves because why would we be with other people when they don't understand our trials and temptations? And we, we lean pretty heavy on the Ephesians 6 stuff, you know, which says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, which is absolutely true, right? And so we say, well, this is, you know, this is just my trial. It's because I'm so spiritual that I'm suffering so greatly. And, and I'm tempted to these things because I'm such a good Christian. And and he says, no, it's actually just common to man. Like you go back in the story of Genesis, this kind of supernatural temptation, that has been common to man since man, yep. <laughs> right? You, Christian, are tempted simply because you are human. Yes, our battle is spiritual. And the nature of our temptation is, not, is, is unique at, in that maybe we're aware more of the spiritual nature of temptation. But the reason why you are tempted to sin or tempted to uh, despair is not because you're a Christian, it's because you're a human. He says it's common to man. Now this is encouraging. Might not seem like it at first, but this is encouraging for this reason. If your temptations are unique, if you really were the one who was, you were tempted in, in that unique way where it was just, you know, you versus Satan all day long and you're the only one he was paying attention to and he was super creative and tempting you with all that stuff. Well, you'd kind of have an excuse, wouldn't you? Because you'd say, well, if my temptations are special, well, of course I can't succeed. Wrong. Your temptation is common and there are saints who have defeated it. There are men and women of God who have faced temptations just like the ones you are currently facing and they have found strength in God and have been shown to be more than conquerors in Christ. Now I want to emphasize this aspect of their victory as I just described it. They found strength in God and are more than conquerors in Christ. Because the rest of this verse can be misunderstood if you go into it without this God-centered understanding of our victory. It says, But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. It is God's faithfulness, rather than your abilities, that is the hero here. But you can easily understand, you could easily see how this verse could, could be understood, misunderstood, I would say, to read something like this. God will never give you more than you can handle. Who's heard that? Everyone. Everyone has heard that. Many of you have said it. 
Oh, you should I call names right now? No, I'm not going to do it. Okay, it no. But we also, okay, and the, the trouble with this is, the, here's the trouble. The trouble is the implication of that phrase. What, what is implied? You can do it yourself. <laughs> oh, that's heartbreaking. Also, within, without any needed qualifiers, the statement, you know, God won't give you more than you can handle, could easily become a false prosperity gospel kind of promise, discounting all martyrs throughout history who obviously couldn't handle what they were given in one sense, but were called instead to suffer beyond what their bodies could physically handle. They died. Well, God won't give you more than you can handle. Am I handling it now? Like, we can't say that to people. Also, the other implication with this, saying people, well, God won't give you more than you can handle, it is implied that they are handling it alone. By telling a sufferer with your hand on their shoulder, God won't give you more than you can handle, and then leaving. No, 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 no. Yeah, what, what you're saying is, I'm not going to help lift this burden. Now, we need to understand this verse rightly, and we need to understand the application rightly so that we can... We can help people who are suffering in these ways that are common to man. He says right here that he, in his sovereignty, God in his sovereignty, will not let you be tempted beyond what you're able. So when he says this, does this mean beyond your own unaided willpower? Does it mean God will not let me be tempted beyond my autonomous, independent, fallen nature? Read the rest of the Bible. It doesn't have a really good optimistic view of your fallen nature. Does it mean... Ability, my ability, minus God's working in me, is enough for me to avoid all temptations. No, it cannot mean that. The, the trouble with this simplified reasoning of God won't give me more than I can handle is that it remains completely on you. And the success or failure of your life depends entirely not on God's faithfulness, but on your ability. To say that your willpower alone is enough for you to resist every temptation of the flesh, the world, and the devil. Well, what do you need a savior for anyway? Honestly, you don't. You just need someone to tell you to buck up and do better. And that's why Jesus died? No. No, no. But that, that's not how Paul views ability here. And we know this because he wrote a whole lot of letters and he uses this word a whole lot. Okay? To say that your abilities and your self-control and your own autonomy is enough to escape every temptation is essentially to shorten Philippians 4.13, another famous verse, you know it. You could just have the short version. It's, I can do all things. But, but you just shorten it. No, no, just I can do all things. Right? That's what you would be left with with this simplistic understanding. That's not the whole verse, is it? The verse is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the context of this verse, written by Paul from prison as he approaches death, is about God empowering us to be able to suffer well. This is how Paul views the Christian's ability. Later on in this letter, he'll say, I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. He says, even when I work, my ability, my ability is God working in me. I just need to be a clear conduit for him to work. Or in Philippians 2, Philippians chapter 2, 13, right after Paul says that kind of confusing verse, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Right after that, he says, for it is God who works. So do the work because when you work, it's God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. 
So how can Paul say he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability because he knows that he has left no Christian by themselves with only their own ability? He has given them a Savior who will never leave them nor forsake them, a Holy Spirit that lives in them, and a church that will bring them from birth to death in the support of the body of Christ. How can he say he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability? Here's how. He knows that your ability as a Christian includes or is God working in you. There's something cooperative going on. He knows that you can do all things through Christ. He knows also the the inverse of this truth, which Jesus says in John 15, verse 5, without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. Paul saying he won't let you, he won't let you be tempted beyond what you are able. He knows that without Christ we can do nothing. So what is our ability then? Well, it's an ability with Christ. You could you could see Paul, imagine Paul writing this, knowing that you would never, he would never be tempted. No Christian would ever be tempted in a way where they are isolated from Christ, who has said, I'll be with you. Always, always, always. Without this full understanding of what your ability is, in this sense, you are at risk of turning Jesus' words on their head. Without me, you can do nothing. It was never meant to be reversed and then understood as I can do everything by myself. It's not opposite day in church, guys. <laughs> That's where you'll end up. That's where you'll end up if you take this verse out of context and force it through that mold. Let's go back to the text. The main theological point in the middle of verse 13. God is faithful. That's the main point. He's the hero of the story. It is his power that you cling to, not your own abilities apart from him. This is not the first time Paul has written these words in this letter, actually. Back in chapter 1, he's already made this point. I'll read it to you in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 7. You wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He's the one that sustains us. He will present us as guiltless in the end. He is faithful, and he has called you to have fellowship with Jesus Christ. That's your ability. It's fellowship with Jesus. Who does the sustaining? It's the Lord. What's the main point here? God is faithful. It is God who will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Now, again, the word for tempted here, it's broad. It's broad enough to include the ideas of testing, This is both trials and temptations. For us to see that God will not let us be tested or tempted beyond a certain point, it's a marvelous, awe-inspiring thing. We can acknowledge here the massive sovereignty of God, that God has the omnipotent power to not allow temptations and tests come to you that he doesn't know about, that he doesn't allow. God has never, ever, ever been surprised by anything that has ever happened to you. You, ne- you never forced your way into a situation that left him feeling tricked. Okay? He has always been the one in control. And as the one in control, he has always, always, always provided for you the means of escape. And that's another word that has broad implications. You have to see here that Paul's understanding of escape includes endurance. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Or in in some translations, you may be able to endure it. This word forces us to reevaluate how we think of escape. Because just like, you know, if you think of temptation in the narrower sense of wanting to do something bad that might feel good for a short amount of time, and you don't want to get caught. But if you think of escape in narrow terms, then you just think of an exit, right? 
And that's one way of understanding this, that this is good, this is included in these words, right? You think of Joseph, the classic example, Joseph in the book of Genesis, he meets Potiphar's wife, you know the story. Joseph is a slave in the home of an Egyptian official named Potiphar. Potiphar's wife would like to have an affair with handsome young Joseph. Joseph knows it's wrong, and we know his situation would not be without temptation. And the way of escape in that scenario was to go to prison. That was his escape. He didn't see it that way first. First, he just ran out the door. And that's a good way of escape, too. It was literally a door. He ran out the door. He ran away. And I will tell you this. There are very few temptations where where the same escape does not exist. In other words, there are very few occasions when there is not an actual door that you can actually leave from if you find yourself in a moment when you are tempted. Unless you're being tempted on an airplane, you probably have a means of physical escape from a tempting situation. Go outside, take a walk, then keep walking. This very well may be the way of escape that the Lord provides. But again, there's a, there's a broader understanding here than just this kind of escape. What about testing? What about the other kind of temptation? The temptation to despair. Joseph fled temptation and then was arrested and spent months or years in prison. That situation presents a completely different set of temptations. The whole point of jail is you can't just run out the door. So what's his way of escape? What are the temptations in that scenario? There are, to despair, to doubt, an ungodly kind of fear. Now, is there a way of escape from that temptation? The scripture says, yes. The way of escape in this case is a means for endurance. You're escaping something else. You're not escaping the the scenario. You're escaping the sin. The way of escape is not just something you can avoid you know, I don't want to take this test and run out the door. You know, you'll, you'll fail that test then, okay? It will be graded. It will be returned to you. There will be an F on it. This escape that is provided, it's not just avoidance, it's endurance. Now, of course, we know this, right? I'm not teaching you anything new here. We know this from our own lives. We know this from the examples of saints in Scripture. Most notably, we know this in Jesus Christ. Was Jesus tempted in every way we are, yet without sin? Yes, that's what the book of Hebrews says. He was tempted in every way. Uh, well, was there a way of was there a way of escape? Yes, of course. Did they still kill him? Yes. And all the apostles, and thousands to millions of Christians in every generation, all tested, all the way to martyrdom. How is that an escape? It's an escape from sin, not from the suffering. Uh, I want to read you this verse from First Peter. In First Peter two nineteen, in the ESV, it says, "For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God." One endures suffering. The gracious thing is that you can experience and endure suffering with your mind on God. If you can suffer while holding Christ in your mind, having your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, then you have escaped the snare of the devil. You have escaped the designs of the enemy who we know would use suffering and trials to get you to take Job's wife's advice, right? Curse God and die. We are not ignorant of Satan's devices. He is called the tempter. So sure, he wants you to suffer, but only so that your suffering will lead to sin. And to this suffering, God will give all we need to endure, and to the temptation to sin, he will provide an escape. Now again, sometimes the escape is that door, and if you're tempted to sin in the room, we'll get to another room. But sometimes the testing is something you can't run from, and your escape is from the sin 
not the suffering. Paul uses the same kind of vocabulary for both types of situations. And near the end of his life, near the end of Paul's life, he actually reflects in his letter to Timothy, his second letter to Timothy, he reflects on both kinds of escape and both kinds of rescue and how God is faithful in the one kind of trial and temptation, tribulation, and in the other. Now, one kind of rescue looks like the end of a movie where the good guy wins, and the other doesn't. And God remains faithful. In 2 Timothy, Paul is getting ready to die. And he's looking back at his life, and he's never been in a better place to affirm the truth that he writes here in 1 Corinthians 10.13. God is faithful. He never let go of that truth. In 2 Timothy 3, he describes one kind of escape and one example of God's faithfulness. And then in chapter 4, he takes another view and shows us another kind of escape. And we can use both these examples to get a full understanding of what he means in Corinthians. 2 Timothy 3, verse 10, reads as follows. says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, where persecution, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. He says he endured, and he says he was rescued. Okay? There was, there was a, a means of bearing the temptation, and there was an escape, both. And he endured, which Peter says is something that's gracious. <laughs> Paul was given grace to endure, grace to suffer, and that's one kind of escape, I guess. And of course, there's the real rescue that none of these persecutions and sufferings killed him, at least not permanently. I know that's a confusing thing when you talk about Paul. But they didn't kill him for good, you know. That's kind of an escape we want, right? We got out of it, and we're alive. And let's just take the encouragement where we can find it. Just as there was no trial or temptation that is not common to man, that does not have its own way of escape, so also we can cling confidently to the truth that there is no trial or temptation that is permanent. And there is no trial or temptation that will outlast the faithfulness of God. I'm not even talking about heaven yet. I'm just talking about the temptations in this life. Paul suffered, and then those seasons of suffering gave way to other seasons. He writes about times of refreshing from the Lord. Um, But each one of those sufferings had a prescribed end date. Yours do too. God can rescue you. Sometimes that's the way of escape. In the next chapter in 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 16 through 18, he takes a different view. And at first it sounds, this, sounds kind of the same, but he shifts gears between 17 and 18. I'll, I'll read this to you. He says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May I not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Okay, he was rescued. He didn't get actually eaten by lions, which was kind of going on back then. So he was rescued. But he also says that no one was with me. I was a, there was a trial. And the Lord strengthened me. He gave the, him his ability to endure that suffering. He was rescued from death. Praise God. The Lord was with him in his loneliness. Praise God. But those aren't the only kinds of rescue he has in mind. Verse 18, 2 Timothy 4.18, says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. The real rescue is heaven. 
The real escape, the final escape, is heaven. The way of escape from temporary temptations, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, our solution is to be mindful of God in the midst of this world, as Peter wrote, and to have our gaze fixed on heaven, as Hebrews 12 says. The escape from the painful trials that we are promised in this life, the escape is a heavenly mindset which will enable us to escape the temptations that suffering brings. But the final escape from the evil deeds of this world, the final escape from all pain and all suffering, is when God brings us safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. He is our hope and our strength in every situation with every sorrow and every joy against every trial and every temptation. And it is because he is more than capable of bringing us through these trials, more than able, as Jude writes, to keep us from stumbling, and more than enough to satisfy every craving of our souls. Because of that, Paul can say, therefore, because God is all that, because God is faithful, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. That's verse 14. Yes, fleeing from the idol is our way of escape, sometimes running like Joseph, right? Straight from temptation. But when you run from an idol, something false, you know, something that promises a satisfaction and can't deliver, when you run from that lie, you must find a truth to run to. You must run to the way, the truth, and the life who has provided in himself a way of escape. What did Paul preach to the Corinthians? His one thing, his one hit wonder, right? Just on repeat, broken record, same song over and over and over. Christ and him crucified. Well, some wanted philosophy. Others wanted signs and wonders. What did Paul preach? Christ and him crucified. Jesus died for your sins. The end. You want to hear it again? Jesus died for your sins. That's Paul in Corinth. What did Paul determine to know among them? Nothing but Christ and him crucified. What then is your way of escape? It's Christ and him crucified. It's Jesus. We sing, Jesus, you are my rescue. Remember when I said that the escape that God will provide will be a door to run through? Just get up, leave Joseph style. Who's the door? It's Jesus. I am the door. The faithfulness of God for us in Jesus, it is he who is our ever-present help in time of trouble. It's, it is he, he's the one who has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am with you all and is one. And our comfort in tribulation is gained when we run to Jesus himself. Just as there is no temptation that is but that which is common to man, there is no rescue, there is no door, there is no savior that is not available to man. And Christ has come to be the rescue, to be the escape out of every trial, out of every temptation. He is the one we run to when we run from the idols, temptations, and troubles of our life. Let's pray, please. Jesus, we do run to you as best we know how with whatever strength you have provided. We look to you for the endurance that we need as we live in this veil of tears. We look to you as the thing that most satisfies us when any lesser pleasure might tempt us. Uh, we look to you as our strong tower when we might look to other places for a sense of security or satisfaction. We look only to you, Jesus, in every trial, in every temptation, through every joy, through every sorrow. We run to you, the door, Jesus.
bless us. Bless us by making us more aware of how beautiful this offer is to us, that we can have you, that we can be with you, that you've promised to be with us. Let us become more and more aware of you, our ever-present help in time of trouble, as the way of escape that the Father has provided. Bless your church. Let us be strong against temptation and strong in suffering. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Please stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You are sent. We are sending. We are sending.